hundreds of thousands of veterans have taken off their uniforms and put them away, carefully packed and safely stowed. But for some veterans, the uniform isn't so easily removed. The emotions experienced while serving continue to weigh on them. Life after service is different. Many veterans find transitioning difficult. Some feel overwhelmed and lost. But that uncertainty doesn't take away from their strength and courage, nor does it take away from the sense of duty veterans carry with them. The power of one person, one connection, one act of compassion can make a difference in the life of a veteran going through a difficult time. For free 24-7 confidential support, call the Veterans Crisis Line or visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio. I'm the host. My name is Travis. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hubazoo Network. You can find out more on Hubazoo.com. Produced by Sinister One Productions, Oscar Mike Radio is also sponsored by Joyce Asak of Asak Real Estate, Reapers Detailing and Power Washing by Army Veteran Mark Holmes, and I'm supported by Simper Savage Salad Dressing, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company. And ladies and gentlemen, as we count down to 300, I am just stoked for our next guest. Navy veteran, retired, author, nonprofit, uh, you know, starter and runner, just amazing person in my life. I can't say that about, and I can't say that about very many people. Gina Alderman, ma'am, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Glad to be here. <laughs> oh, I... You don't salute the Lance Corporal, ma'am. But that was cool. That was cool. I, I got to remember that. I do salute the Lance Corporal. Oh, my God. You, my God. you are doing awesome things out here. You're a world changer, Travis. You know, Coach Brandy said the same thing. I, we're going to talk about all that. So how did we all get connected? I want to give a big shout out to Courtney Nold, who also served in the Navy. And I'd have to salute her who got me connected to, uh, you know, a group and I get an invite saying, hey, come join this group. We're on Zoom and I come in the group, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the only guy there. And they're all talking about this book they're doing. And after the book, I got to talking with Gina, who introduced me to Coach Brandy, who introduced me to Sheila Farr. And it's this big, like, man, this is big, like avalanche of stuff going on. It's all about the love, Travis. It's all about the love, buddy. <laughs> oh, wow. These mm. women compared notes, ladies and gentlemen. So as we get started, why don't you introduce yourself to us and kind of tell us a little bit about your, your military career and, you know, how you dealt with, you know, Marines. <laughs> I love to start with the Marines. In 28 years active duty, I had 13 duty stations, and four of those duty stations were with the Marine Corps. And I want to tell you, I was a better officer as a result of it. Really? So in the Navy, when I, when I joined, my dad told me he, he was a retired master chief in the Navy. He said, you need to find a chief as a young officer and latch on to him. He had never served with the Marines, so he didn't know to tell me to find a Lance Corporal and latch on to him. And let me tell you, those Marines have a big place in my heart, just like you do, Travis. 
what's that? that that's hitting me in the feels. There's a there's a black hole right here, but <laughs> it's hitting me in the feels. It's like, oh wow. So you, you work with Marines and you you're you're in the medical, you're right? You, you that's correct. Medical um, for the Navy, Department of Navy, which yeah. includes the Marine Corps, provides support for the Marines. Um, we provide chaplain support for the Marines. Oh, really? Religious support. That's correct. Um, and, and there are many other things that we do as, as well. But um, what I loved about being stationed with the Marines, I'll start there, is that it was really the first time in my career and at that point, I had been in 11 years. It was the first time in, in my career that I had the opportunity to serve with true war fighters or, or any war fighters. And so I learned um, the operational, the strategic and the tactical maneuver warfare. And I was a company commander at a surgical company. And we would uh, twice a year go out and set up and, and do exercises you know, practicing playing war games, essentially. And in our medical battalion of 500 people, we had 250 Marines that were actually assigned directly to us. And uh, you name it, motor transportation, communication, uh, facilities, engineers, you know, everything to provide the infrastructure to basically run a field surgical hospital. Wow. If, you've ever, if you've ever watched MASH on TV, the Mobile Army Surgical yeah. Hospital show, that's pretty much what uh, a Navy medical battalion does. We have uh, three surgical companies per battalion. And then within the surgical company, you also have the opportunity to break out and have shock trauma platoons that essentially can go forward and act as forward surgical teams in support of the, the forward edge of the battle area with the Marines. Okay. So we, we were tight, the Marines. And I got to be an S3 officer, which meant I ran operations. And so I planned all the operations uh, and exercises, you know, for the medical battalion. And in doing that, you really form a really close relationship with your Marines, because if you don't have a close relationship with your S4, your logistician, your supply folks, your motor transport, your commo, um, you're not going to be successful on the field. So that's, that's really where my heart is. Awesome. I, I came up as a Girl Scout and, you know, we, we went to the field as Girl Scouts. Uh, but we didn't have the Marines supporting us. So <laughs> I approached it like a Girl Scout and I, and I grew up into understanding what the warfighter does out there. That's amazing. So. You know, the Girl Scouts is an amazing organization. It's about service. And here you go, you serve us. And shot day must have been one of your favorite days. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I freaking knew it. Uh, yeah. It's all about the love, Travis. <laughs> How is that love? I mean, no way, man. That had to freaking chain me there and make me stand there to get that thing done. So you serve in this area and, you know, you're in medicine. And, and what I understand, there's a lot of times where you see people at their worst, they're hurt and they're, they're damaged. You see people overcoming certain things and you, you, you retired from the Navy, right? Correct. You know, it had to have left a, an impression upon you, you know, serving in that capacity. It, it did, Travis. Um, I, I started out enlisted, and um, I had a GED out of high school. I, did, I oh. didn't have a high school degree. Yeah. Neither did I. Yeah. See, we have that in common. I love it. And um, because my dad, my parents divorced when I was five, and my dad had served Navy, and so I was attempting to come back into his life later as a teenager. 
And uh, so I sought him out and, and uh, told him I was interested in the military. And so he connected me with a couple of recruiters. But back then in 1983, 1982 timeframe, if you had a GED, you also had to have um, a waiver or you had to have a year of college. So I, I set some short-term goals and I, I went and cranked out 30 college credits so I could become eligible to, to come enlisted. I actually enlisted in the Air Force. At that time, there was a lot of discrimination and problems going on throughout the services. And my dad felt like the Air Force um, might be a more, I would say kind of a protective type service in the, in the sense that you're not deploying a lot. Um, I was working in a hospital as a hospital administrator, medical administrative specialist. And um, so I dealt with patient care from an administrative perspective. And I got my first taste of, of field medicine as the air transportable hospital deployed to the field and in practice exercises to prepare for worldwide mobility and deployments. So what I love about the military, Travis, is that um, they really push education. And so after my first year in the Air Force, I was encouraged by my mentor then, and she's actually the endorser for this book that's coming out now retired Air Force Colonel Nancy McDaniel. Uh, she, she looked at me and we talked about the education and she said, you know, Gina, you, sh you should really go for your bachelor's degree in healthcare administration and become an officer. She said, because you have the drive, you have the enthusiasm, you have to love the patient and, and for the warfighter. And so I took her up on that. You know, it took me six years going to school four nights a week and every other weekend, but I got my bachelor's degree. And again, yeah. wanting to Wanting to follow in my dad's footsteps, I, I joined the Navy and not the Air Force as an officer. What was that like going from the Air Force to the Navy? Usually it's the other way around sometimes. It is. You know, it's really interesting. The, the more um, duty stations I had, the more people I found that had actually had a couple different military services. So I will tell you the first two years, it was like learning a foreign language because in the Air Force, Air Force was very much like um, the Fortune 500 company. And so if you can imagine working in a corporate environment and working in a hospital environment, very much like that. But coming into the Navy, everything, everything had nautical terms. Even if, even if you're in a, in a fixed facility, my first duty station was the Naval Hospital Pensacola. You know, you, I had to learn uh, terminology such as uh, the head, which in the Air Force was a latrine, the bulkhead, which is a wall. Yeah. You know, you just speak to your commanding officer and you say, aye, aye, sir, aye, skipper, just like you're on a ship. Right. You put in, you put in a request to take uh, vacation time. They called it a leave chit, C-H-I-T, chit. It, again, it was like a, a whole different uh, lingo. So the first two years, um, I was still... I guess you could say enculturation, enculturating, um, because I really loved the Air Force and I had served seven years and I had been an instructor. So, so it, it was it was a challenge, um, but I was very blessed because in the Navy culture, they take the most junior officer, um, which is called an ensign. And they give them duties, collateral duties. And in my case, you're either the boot ensign, which means you're the most junior ensign, or you're the bull ensign, which means you're the most senior ensign. So I was both the boot and the bull. 
And when you're the boot ensign, you literally carry around a combat boot filled with concrete to all your meetings. And if you show up to a meeting without it, there's penalties and consequences to be had. Really? Oh, yeah. And then when you're the bull ensign, you're in charge of the herd of ensigns, which means you're the SLJO, shitty little jobs officer. <laughs> and uh, I had 22 collateral duties, and I had to do these monthly luncheons and, and quarterly hell and farewells and, and the Navy birthday ball planning and uh, the Medical Service Corps annual ball planning. But I loved it. I thrived. And so that's what helped me enculturate, was doing all those, those boot ensign and bull ensign duties at the Naval Hospital Pensacola. I learned something new today. I thought officers just had it on easy street, you know, and oh, had all, no. all the cheese and the little underlings to do all their work for them. I didn't realize, wow, wow. So, so you, <laughs> and we have boots too. You got to earn your stripes and earn your, well, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. You, you go through this and, and you're growing your military career. You've been in two branches. You're getting your college degree uh, and you're, you're, you know, expanding your, your practice, but every service comes to an end. And I was just curious if you kind of go over what that end of your service was like to transitioning back to civilian life. You don't have to, but I'm just, you know. No, 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 I want, I want to. I was just forming the words. Um, sure, sure. So throughout my career, I had, I had a bunch of, you know, short-term and long-term, long-range goals. And first, my goal was, you know, I wanted to get my education. And then I realized I thrived in the military. So then I thought, well, I'll do a minimum uh, uh, set of tours that qualify me for retirement. So that's 20 years back then. And so once I got to 20, um, I thought, you know, I'm really having a good time. I had been selected for Lieutenant Commander, which is like a major in the Marine Corps and the other services. And I thought, well, why couldn't I go for 30? Because every year that you serve as a military serviceman or woman, um, you earn more, you accrue more money toward retirement. So it was like two and a half percent more pay for retirement every year I did over 20. And then if you get promoted, which I was blessed and I was promoted to commander at about, uh, I want to say 26, 25, 26 years. And so, so you have that pay raise and then you have the longevity portion of it. Well, something happened to me in um, 2005 and it was that I was diagnosed with PTSD and I was diagnosed with co something called complex PTSD. So my last couple of years of service were very arduous in that People kept telling me, you'll know when it's time to retire. And I could feel it. I could, I could feel the pressure of, uh, first of all, how you change when you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And then coming back to, uh, through that trauma experience and coming back to uh, finding a way to fully function because you're changed and your wiring in your brain is so different um, that you, you, it's almost like a toddler learning to walk. So I had to learn to relearn to trust, to, to um, go, you know, go to meetings without having fear. You know, I, I was briefing toward the end of my career, the last two years, I was briefing a four-star general on a regular basis. And he didn't hesitate to yell, scream, and cuss at people. He never did me because I had done my homework. But just the looming fear of this man, you know, getting down my neck. Um, 
So, so that happened to me. And um, my admiral at the time was a two-star admiral. He was a fleet surgeon. And, and he knew, he said to me, Gina, you'll make 06. You'll make captain. You got captain in the bag based on, you know, my service history and, and, and all my officer fitness reports and my personal awards and the deployments. But I just told him, I said, sir, I'm, I'm broke. I said, I don't, I don't know that I could stay in long enough to, to put on 06 and my payback would be three years. I don't know how healthy I would be, you know, for the service and it, it wouldn't be fair. So I made the decision that year before the selection board met, I, I put in my retirement paper. So that took my name out of consideration for promotion. And that was the hardest thing. That was really the hardest thing that, up until that point, uh, decision-wise that I had to do because I really loved the Navy. I loved serving, loved being in the medical field. I loved being with the war fighters. And I wanted to go to Afghanistan. And that's what my next promotion would have been. It would have taken me over and I would have been able, instead of being just a medical plans and operations officer I, at, at the Pentagon, you know, working to send people forward and at fleet forces working to send people forward, uh, and then I would have been in the thick of things. And um, I never got that opportunity. And so as you transition to your original question, as you transition to civilian life, it's almost like a grieving process, or at least it was for me. The grieving well, process, uh, go ahead. Let me ask you this. Looking back now, you've had some time, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit about the transition process, but looking back, you seem to listen to your, not just your body, but your mind and soul and said, you know what, this is, this is time. It doesn't sound like though you have any regrets about doing that, that that was absolutely the correct decision for you at the time. Do, do I, do I read that right? hundred percent because I knew Travis, you know, you're, if I'm taking care of a Marine's life, if I am in charge of a surgical company, I need to be 100% fit for full duty, mind, body, spirit. I've, I've got to be synchronized. And if I cannot give you 100%, then, then I have to get out of the way. I have to, make, I have to move on and make room for the other people to, to come forward, get promoted, and, and take those roles on. So I do not have regret, although I was mourning that last year. Right. And, and I had a lot of emotional struggles because I, it, was, it was almost like a divorce. Even though you know you're always going to be tied to it uh, from the memories, you're not going to live it every day like you had, in my case, for 28 years. And so there was some grieving involved um, at, a sur at a surface level. And But now, uh, 11 years later, I, I look back and I thank God for that, those opportunities and what including the PTSD brought to my life was the projects I was able to get involved in after the military. You're not the first officer who's like 04, 05, 06, who told me that there was a grieving time. Like you, you think officers have this easy street and some of them say, you know, it was extremely tough for them making that change for very, you know, different reasons. But a lot of them expressed that there was a, a time to come to grips with the fact that they weren't in the military anymore and that things had changed and embracing that change. So you start the transition process and, and you're starting to come more into the civilian life and you've been one of us now for uh, 11 years, right? We, we, we met over this book called, you know, Veterans Unchanged, Veterans Unleashed, this, this whole project. But there's a lot of things that happen to you to lead up to that. 
Is there right. anything you'd like to talk about before? Because that's part of the story, how you got to this cool book that we're going to talk about here in a minute. But but kind of fill in that gap for me, please, if you would. I, I'm happy to tell this story. So in 1994, my first duty station with the Marines, um, within three months of me arriving at 2nd Medical Battalion, my commanding officer committed suicide. He was an 05. And as you know, as a Marine, your commanding officer was like God. I mean, a battalion commanding officer is, you know, when he speaks, everybody listens. And, and he reports to the commanding general. And, and you have a direct line um, up and down. And so, so when something like suicide happens, which, as you know, we have uh, 18 to 22 veterans in active duty a day commit suicide, over 6,000 to 8,000 men and women a year, veterans in active duty are committing suicide. It rocked my world. And, and what it did, I didn't have PTSD right away. I compartmentalized it. But, you know, working with, with my enlisted troops, uh, them not trusting the officers that were telling them, us not trusting our chain of command, you know, like, you know, we didn't get the help we needed before the CO committed suicide. <sighs> Changes your whole, whole perspective. And so what happens is, is when you have a major trauma like that, here's what I learned. So I did a lot of research to try to understand how did this happen to me. Um, in my case, there was some childhood trauma that resurfaced that I hadn't dealt with, um, specifically childhood sexual trauma. And, and so over a period of time from 1994 to 2005, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, um, the, these, these instances of any kind of fear-based activity that would occur in the military or in your private life would continue to create doubt, would continue to create fear. And then eventually with complex PTSD, there's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And um, there, there was an incident that happened to me in 2005 that uh, I, I was at probably the safest duty station I could have been. I was at, at Marine University, Quantico, uh, Command and Staff College. But there was an incident that happened to me off duty that then caused me to feel unsafe for about 10 months and finally I just uh I snapped and um so so then I had to get counseling you know for about six weeks intensive counseling and hypnotherapy saved my life but but what that did I can only say it today I could I couldn't have said it even probably a year and a half ago but what that did that experience allowed me for a brief moment to identify with why and how those 18 to 22 people a day commit suicide. Because although I was never suicidal, I thought every morning during that six week period of, man, it would be nice if I didn't have to wake up or get up today, you know, just go to sleep forever. And um, because you wanna be taken out of your grieving and your suffering. So, so that changed. So from 2005, you know, to when I got out of the military, um, I pursued a, a graduate degree in clinical mental health counseling for two years because I wanted to understand at, at the deepest level, you know, how does PTSD happen? And, and so I actually took a whole series of graduate courses and I, and I did six months of a 12 month internship 
uh, for medical family therapy. And it was for people that were essentially terminally ill or had life-altering conditions that would cause an early death. And what I found in counseling those folks for six months, and it was all different patients at this particular hospital in the Hampton Roads, Tidewater, Virginia area, uh, I found that I was not ready to be a one-on-one -on -one counselor. I was not healed enough to do the level of counseling um, that someone needed to essentially maybe prevent them from committing suicide uh, or that the family was grieving their loved one was dying. And often 99 times out of 100, the loved one that was dying, perfectly fine, satisfied, made their peace, but it was their family around them that was having difficulty dealing with it. So, so from, if I may, is, is yes. that what happened when your commanding officer committed suicide? It wasn't just the fact that this is an individual that committed suicide in, in your words we are kind of like a family whether we want to admit it or not when we're serving like that so there are people beneath him and around him that feel this just as keenly as if he were a husband or a brother or a son and that's that's a lot to work through because you know there were four marines that died during peacetime in, in my unit and it was pretty much okay they're buried uh, back to work at 0700 tomorrow. Yeah. That's a lot to unpack though, right? Yeah, the, the, the Navy, Navy medicine in general does, did, now this is, again, this is 1994. Okay. Things have improved since then, but they did uh, send a group of men and women called a sprint team to us, to our battalion of 500. They sent a team of 14 psychiatrists, psychologists, psych te techs, chaplains, um, chaplain religious support staff and they got us in small groups um, to try to process how we felt the first instant we heard about his death and then process how do we get back to the mission uh, the officers had one opportunity I was his casualty officer I identified his remains I walked into the funeral home he was dead and naked on a slab the impact that it had on me personally was much deeper in the sense of the visualization. I drove his car back to the base. I saw, you know, in his car, you know, the last things he had had um, going on. And I had to deal with his wife every day, every day until the military funeral. And there was a lot of anger. He was going to be relieved of command and, and she knew nothing. He knew he was going to be relieved of command. He had been told he was under investigation for a few months, but he never told his wife. And so it came when he decided to commit suicide because I think he couldn't live potentially with the shame or the grief of being relieved of command. Um, it, it shook her world. And, you know, they had a young daughter and a young son and uh, they lived separate uh, geographically, not maritally. He would go home on weekends to Charleston, South Carolina, and we were at Camp Lejeune. And so she knew nothing was going on. And so I was very, I, I was cautioned the things I could tell her. Uh, the NCIS was investigating. It was like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, Travis. The night they pulled me out there, I was, I was called around three o'clock saying, oh, the NCIS is going to interview you. You need to stick around the battalion. So I stuck around and about 7.30, I called my XO at home and I said, sir, they've not called me yet. I'm, I'm, it's dinner time. I'm going to eat. And he goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. 
So he called them. He called me back and he said, they're, they're going to get with you any minute. It was 930 at night when they finally called me. And Camp Lejeune, there's parts of the base that's very, very dark. And uh, it was raining and storming, very Alfred Hitchcockish. And uh, so, so I drove you know, to the back of the building to park, very dark woods. The, the light at the door was flickering, you know, just, just like a movie, you know, I could hear, you know, <laughs> the music playing. And I go in and the NCIS agent wasn't right, available right that second. So the other guy greeted me at the door, told me to have a seat. When I was eventually called upstairs to talk to this person, um, big gentleman, he had food on his tie. He was very disheveled, very disorganized. He tells me to sit down. He won't make eye contact. And uh, fi finally, I get very disturbed. I think it's a tactic they use. I, I get very disturbed. And I said, sir, it's 930 at night. I feel very unsafe right now. I'm just making it known for the record if you're recording me, which I figured he was. And I said, uh, we either need to get on with this interview or I'm going to leave. So he, <clears throat> you know, some bravado and, and he went ahead. And he proceeded to ask me questions like he was like I was involved in this whole process and what I had known up until, you know, the CEO's death. And, and uh, the only thing that I had had knowledge of was a hotline complaint that had come in making allegations that, that uh, the CEO was involved in um, some activities uh, with Amway and, and had recruited some people in the battalion. And that that hotline complaint, you know, went away, the XO and CO took care of it. And I was the S1 officer. So his allegations were, well, shame on you. You didn't handle it, you know, according to, you know, the proper channels. And, you know, I just, something clicked in me and I, I stood up and it was funny, the chair flipped back because I stood up so abruptly. And I just told him, I said, you know, this interview's over. I feel unsafe here. I said, I feel like you're accusing me of something. And uh, I take it very seriously, what's happened to my commanding officer. And I said, uh, if you want to interview me in the future, it will be in the presence of my XO in uh, daylight hours in, uh, during duty hours. And I walked out, never heard from him again. But that's, that's how we were treated. I wasn't the only one that was being interviewed by NCIS. And uh, you know, we were just basically right to the coals. It was, it was really sad. You bring all this out of the service. You're you're transitioning. You're grieving, and then you go into. I'm just going to say, like like a really advanced mental health studies. Realize you can't be a counselor. You, you know, you got. You have to start healing somehow. When did when did healing start taking place for you, Gina? Well, there there are a couple of things I realized that I had to. I had a quest for knowledge, which I already said. Um, I had to make peace with the fact that I had a mental health condition. I had to learn to surrender and say, you know what? This isn't normal. You know, people don't experience this every day. So it's okay that you felt broken or that you feel broke. Now, what are you going to do with it? So I had to find a way to love myself again and, and, and basically get back to living. Um, one thing that was profound for me was networking with other uh, veteran service organizations. Like uh, I have my shirt on today, the Military Officers Association, MOA. I recognize that shirt. I've seen a couple officers wear that. Yeah. 
I just had my meeting yesterday, my monthly meeting with them, and I had it, and I thought I'll just throw this on for the interview because it's kind of like my the only uniform shirt I have now. But the American Legion, uh, I ride motorcycles, and and they're huge with with oh, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You said <laughs> nothing about riding a motorcycle to me earlier, Gina. Well, I, I've admired your your motorcycle pictures many times, but you're right. I never told you. I, I actually have a Harley Davidson trike, a 2018 triglide ultra. I do. Folks, you mean you 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 gotta watch the show to learn all about the the guests. <laughs> this is amazing. So the yeah, the American Legion has the American Legion riders. My post has a riders unit. So you got involved with the American Legion? Yes, yes. And I want to I want to tell what was you what's that like? What's that like? Yeah. Well. It's, it's kind of hard. You, you have to be careful because th there's a couple of things. My Riding bikes, motorcycles is my thing. My husband, you know, he got his rider's license for me. We got married and uh, because he knew I had a fat boy, Harley Davidson fat boy anniversary edition from 2003. And so he'd ridden dirt bikes as a kid, but it wasn't anything he was going to do. So we, when we retired and moved to the Tampa Bay area, Hillsborough County, which is our county, has according to the sheriff's department, the largest number of motorcycle registrations in any county in the United States. That's what they told me. So there's, there's events all the time, every weekend for 52 weekends. And so the American Legion Riders, um, Christian Motorcycle Riders Association, uh, there's a lot of veteran organizations, huge homeless veteran problem here in this area. And we have many veteran nonprofits that work on those issues. We all ride motorcycles. There's thousands of us, uh, at least 5,000 that I know, just, just in the surrounding counties. But, but the difficulty was when I walked into that first American Legion meeting, you know, I'm wearing a wedding ring, but I don't have a man with me. So the first thing, you know, uh, they, they want to know who you are and what's your motive, your ulterior motive, if you have one. And I just let the ladies know, I'm not here to get your man. I <laughs> have a good man. <laughs> so once that I broke the ice and then I got a lot of ribbing because I was an officer because a lot of those guys are, are chiefs and, and, you know, senior enlisted uh, from the other services. Um, but they take you in. It's a brotherhood, sisterhood. And that helped me heal, truthfully. Awesome. Wow. Uh, great. I, I've given this, the American Legion a second chance. We'll see how it goes. I'll let you know. But th that's amazing. So, you know, you're, you're doing this and you're going through your, your healing process. And then, you know, how did you get started with this whole authoring thing with the Veterans Anthologies? Because, you know, that's how we met and that's how I met Coach Brandy and Courtney. And it's just spun into this whole big thing now. Well, what's, what's exciting is, is the, so we're getting to the heart of May 19th here. What's exciting is we're doing our ebook launch today on May 19th. May and, 19th. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, but I want to say, I had to look at the weeks, but on 13, 14 weeks, we started this project and we were all strangers. So I have to back up to answer your question. I, I found uh, Brandy Miles, I'm on multiple veterans sites and I was intentionally joining um, PTSD veterans groups. I had gotten off Facebook during the height of COVID and the presidential election, but I came back recently. So I had to like literally start from scratch with a brand new account. 
And so as I'm finding all these different Facebook groups, I come across multiple women veteran groups. I mean, to the number of 10,000 strong women veteran groups. And, and Brandy saw me and, and other women. She invited us to her group. Uh, she is a life coach, what they call play life coach. And uh, I love the interview that you did with Brandy, by the way. It's very playful. Oh, oh thank you. That was a big home run. So, so I met Brandy the end of November and she invited me into Veterans Unleashed and she has a thousand women in that group, just went over a thousand recently. And um, it was divine intervention because I, I'm, first of all, I want to tell you, I am a Christian. I believe in God, but I'm not a Bible thumper and I don't go to church every Sunday, but I really have a deep spiritual connection with God in my heart. And I have since I was 12 years old, since I became, you know, saved and baptized but, but my mind has expanded. I, I embrace now all religions, you know, not just Christianity, because I believe there's multiple paths to God. With that said, it was almost like if you can vision in a dream, I don't know if you have dreams, but I have vivid dreams at night. And people appear in my dreams from time to time. And, and it's almost like people that I've known from the past, or I'm going to know. And, and Brandy was one of these souls that I felt like I have been walking a similar path uh, uh, parallel to her at the same time, but we weren't ready to meet yet. And I found out our path started January 2019, very similarly, but on di different planes. And, and it was like, oh, there's Brandy. It was literally like, there is my buddy, my partner, my, my battle buddy, if you would. Um, someone I knew was going to come into my life. And I know that sounds you know, like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, but it was just one of those like, kind of like people talk about, you know, finding that soulmate. So, so unlike a romantic love, it was like, you know, this instant connection with a sister. And so then she started telling me, um, as I life coached with her once a week, she started telling me of the project she's doing, because I was very interested. If you're a life coach, show me by example, what are you doing? And so she was involved in this anthology an anthology is simply a collection of works and it can be from an individual like Shakespeare or it could be from a group of people telling a story. If you've ever heard of the chicken soups for the soul books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, and Reader's Digest. Same oh, thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a collection of stories. So they were doing, her and Sheila Farr, Sheila Farr was the visionary aid, uh, author. They were doing a book called Cage Fight, Overcoming the Battle in Your Mind. And so something resonated. I watched them. He launched that book on May 20, uh, excuse me, January 27th. The day that they e-launched, it was an ungodly amount. It was like 40,000 other books e-launched the same day on Amazon. Amazon has a self-publishing uh, tool called Kindle Direct Publishing. They don't charge you to publish your book, your e-book. They do want, if you're going to do a paperback, they want you to sell it for at least 49 cents. So they were they e-launched Cage Fight, $1.99, and I watched them on the 27th of January when 40,000 books launched. They were able to go within a 24-hour period. Um, Sheila Farr has an algorithm uh, or, or a method to the Amazon algorithm, how you can, you, you do so many sales in a, a very short, finite period of time, and that'll take you into the top 100. And uh, once you reach the top 100, there's different categories, but it's like you get a silver badge and it's like you're an international bestseller. 
Or if you get number one in any particular category, you get a gold badge and you're literally a number one, top number one bestseller in a category. And why that's important is that if you're going to go on into the publishing world, that credential is huge to have. And so I watched them take Cage Fight in 24 hours to uh, international bestseller in four categories. And it was only a $1.99 book. And, and I thought, look at how many people are being reached by, and, and those stories were telling about how, kind of like what I told you, you know, I, I, I sought for learning to surrender and self-love and all that. And essentially they were sharing their stories, how they overcame themselves to live their best life. Right, right. So, so Randy and I started talking about how could I do that? And she said, well, just announce in my group, Veterans Unleashed, that you're looking for some women to write a book. And then Sheila got on board. We actually hired Sheila Farr as our literary agent, our publisher, and our mentor. And let me tell you, she charged a fraction of, of what she, most of these anthologies go for a minimum 10,000, minimum. She charged us less than $3,000. And then I, I gave her some extra money because she ended up, she's put hundreds of hours of work into this process for me. But what I love about it is she gives you all the, the knowledge. I believe in see one, do one, teach one. So along the way, she's teaching us these techniques, giving me and us, the women in the book, her training slides. So we can go out and do our own anthologies and or write our own book. And so, you know, we're, we're doing this for May 19th. And the book is launching on May 19th. And I'll have right. the link in the show post where you can get it today. I'm going to get mine. I, I, I can't wait for this. Like, like, you know, I've got it because I've had a chance to meet some of the women who contributed and, you know, talk with them, a couple of them and, and, and see their story. And I was part of that group that one night where we got connected and it's women veterans serve they're getting more represented, but they're not represented as much as other groups are. And it's really different as a guy to see, you know, the nuts and bolts of women coming together, not to, like, I got sisters. So I know how, well, you know, look at the dress she was wearing. Ugh. Did you see how she did that salad? She couldn't, she, right? There's the, the, you all do that. You just do. But it's not yeah. like that now where there's 10, 12 women in a group, all of them coming together like this to move this forward. And you all are helping each other heal and, you know, attain goals and network and empower each other. You know, I got to tell you, honestly, Gina, I was like, like, wow, okay. You know, I don't want to be in front of these women if they decide to take over the objective <laughs> because I'm just going to get mowed down. But I think we need to see more of that. And I just I just found that very empowering for that moment in time. Yes, and, and it all started with Courtney Nold. Courtney came to me very, very early in the anthology process. I first I had to decide a name of our project and had to decide a theme. And, and Courtney, oh, God sent her to me. She's an angel on earth. I love Courtney Nold. She had published a book, Total War on PTSD. And uh, again, a life-changing experience for me. She brought together 47 strangers, not at the same time, over a two or three year period. And they each contributed a chapter till she got hers done. And then Courtney helped me and, and Sheila 
far and Brandy uh, Miles helped me recruit women. So there's 20 of us in this project. And, and one of them is my endorsing official from 1983, my mentor from the Air Force, Colonel uh, Air Force retired Nancy McDaniel. But all the others, were we were strangers. We didn't know each other. And, and, it, and I often say it's like herding cats because women are very competitive and we're in the military. Sometimes you're in situations where women don't always support women. It's, it's competition because you're ranked against each other. So for this group of women, and I'm talking about senior enlisted women, command master chiefs at sea and shore, sergeant majors in, of the army, of in infantry units, you know, colonels and captains and, and lance corporals and specialists, you know, all coming together and being able to work um, and talk about trauma. I'll tell you, these stories will rock your world. They're, they will take you to your knees. There were some stories I had to go back to four times. I couldn't make it through the first time because we're talking about deep, deep childhood trauma. Some cases, childhood sexual trauma. Uh, um, military sexual trauma is there. It's, it's not heavy, you know, a primary theme in the book, but it's a portion of the book. But mainly what we wanted to do, we all agreed that we wanted to help raise veteran issues, uh, raise awareness about suicide, combat, uh, isolation, addiction. Um, but we also wanted to provide hope for others that are out there living in trauma and suffering that maybe they can identify with our stories and something can resonate. Because if we could take, get someone to pause for five seconds that's about to commit suicide, you know, maybe they've got the gun or they've got the pills and they read our story or they hear about this project and they say, you know what, let me take a moment, let me take a time out. And, and we get them off focus and looking over here instead of on the track of suicide from their trauma, then we've accomplished our mission. If we could just get someone to pause take a knee, identify with us to see that our suffering is, is throughout humanity. And, and we've all been there. And there is hope for you and for me and for us collectively as a group. And there's, and there's power and support. And so essentially Veterans Unchained now goes to support, we're going to do a series of books, Travis. Um, I developed a nonprofit, Brandy helped me create this vision. And, and so my husband and I, Tony Stockton, retired uh, Navy commander, uh, master sergeant, gunnery sergeant, retired Chris Barnett from the Marine Corps. We formed a nonprofit called Rugged Warrior Healing Coalition. And right now we're a virtual nonprofit, but the proceeds from these books are going to allow us to create retreats to send veterans and their partners uh, for healing opportunities. So this is, this is going to, it's, it's basically um, uh, an echo effect or, a, you know, a wave effect. It's, it's going to there's resonate. A, there's a whole, like right now, because as this is airing, the book has launched. I'll have the link in the post. Please order it. This is already going to start other actions down the way. I mean, you've gotten to this point, Gina, as we kind of wind down. Ha take a step back. Take a step back with me and think about where you were and what you're doing now. What might happen in the future? How does that feel inside right now? Well, I can, I can tell you, I, I've prayed for a long yeah. time and, and asked God to help me. And 
And because my suffering was so deep and painful, I said, I said, God, please find a way for me to pay this forward and to help other people. And it's, it's like a prayer, a 20 year prayer that has finally, you know, actually 28, if you go back to 1994 uh, with my CO committing suicide, you know, prayer has been answered that we can help each other heal. And it feels, it feels great to know you can have a bunch of strangers come together and write a book. And now Travis, you're joining us with Veterans Unchained 2.0, and I we're going to go on. <laughs> I am. We'll have to have you come back on and talk to us about that. That was a very, uh, very surreal experience. I'll, 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 I'll hint you there. <laughs> but it's kind of surreal right now because as we're talking, as this airs, the link is live. People can buy this book. And the money going to buy this book is going to help somebody else down the way, much like yourself, much like myself, or somebody else going through a hard time. And this can continue. It's kind of like you're playing a tree right now or dropping the variable pebble in the pond. If this is something else, this is really special. I've done a lot of these, but this is this is a new one for me. I really, I really have appreciated getting to talk with you about this. Thank you. I, I loved your, what you just said, your analogy of planting a tree. That's exactly what we're doing here. Yeah. Thank you, Travis. Each tree has multiple little acorns, little seeds that go out into the world. And, you know, sometimes a tree burns down that actually gets more growth going on there. And as you grow this, what's your ultimate vision for what you're doing, not only with your nonprofit, but with these anthologies, what are you hoping happens? Well, I, I've already been introduced to other military uh, authors, but but I, I would love to see a project. And, and I started calling this recently the Veterans Unchained Project instead of just the title of a book, because I feel like, and it doesn't have to be Veterans Unchained, but I feel like as a project, veterans, active duty, retired, those that served can come together to help healing um, and help reduce suffering in the world. So that would be, if, if I were to have a world vision, is that as it, that these projects connect to other projects? Because that's essentially what our nonprofit is. It's a virtual nonprofit. We're not a brick and mortar nonprofit, but we're partnering with other nonprofits to uh, host these healing retreats. So that's what I, my, my world vision is that we continue to partner and network so that we become stronger and stronger. And, and eventually that 18 to 22 a day goes to 15, goes to 10, goes to, you know, zero a day because, you know, we've achieved healing um, for humanity. <laughs> awesome. awesome. So last thing, how can people get the book? What should we do to get the book? Because so we're, I'm going to order it. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to. We're going to have a link here on this show yep. and it's the, the ebook is a dollar 99. And if you would like to purchase the paperback book, that it's going to be about eight weeks behind. So what each of the authors are doing, the paperback is $25. So if you purchase the ebook, we are giving you $2 off, you know, the paperback book um, and your paperback book will be autographed and have an inscription. Each chapter has the author's bios and uh, many of the authors have uh, nonprofits or they have a business and a way for you to connect to them. So we're going to put the link in the show for you to purchase that $1.99 book today, tonight. And um, 
pay it forward. Almost like can't wait for the show to be over so I can <laughs> read the book I purchased, Gina. I know, right? It's like, okay, I mean, I, I love, but let's get, let's, uh, I, I'm going to light a cigar and read it on my Kindle and uh, let you know what I think. This is, this is an amazing moment. Like it's all happening right now. You know, it's. It, it, I love the thought about the lighting the cigar and and oh man, I'm a cigar girl. I tell you, <laughs> maybe we need to do that and just have a have a drink and you know we can do a Zoom reading the book and having our cigars. <laughs> you didn't tell me she liked motorcycles, folks, and now she just oops. Yeah, I like cigars too. Yeah. I, I you know, ma'am. Uh, you know, the last corporals got the assignment. We're gonna we're gonna do that special for for uh, the next time we do this. That would be really cool. I love that. Really Thank cool. you, Travis. Absolutely. You're, I tell you, you're a shining star out here in this dark world. And I've watched many of your shows, and um, you're do you're doing some great things, putting these people out here and giving them a platform. These for law enforcement, firefighters, first responders, and veterans. I just think it's precious what you do. And, I mean, and again, brother, hand salute to you. Oh, <laughs> making me blush. Stop it. Stop it. Um, no, it's just just a purpose that I discovered uh, almost six years ago. Um, you know, got help along the way from Keith Hayes, a sense to one productions. We are counting down to, to number 300. And, and you know, the, the fun and the work that I had with show number one or two, you know, versus now hasn't changed. It's, it's effort, sure. But you know, your story has value, your your service has value, what you gave to our country and what you do outside of your service. I mean, you didn't just wilt away into nothingness. You, you continue to find a way to give back. I believe that these all help everybody, not just veterans or our active duty military. So the salutes right back at you, ma'am. I mean, you know, we wouldn't be here and without people like Courtney and Sheila and Brandy. And yeah, Brandy's show was interesting. I'm telling you, I'm, I can't, <laughs> that's going to be an interesting round too. But, you know, it's all about helping each, helping us out because we're all that's going to help each other out. Exactly. 100%. All right, I'm Travis Oscar Mike Radio. I am with Gina Alderman, a retired Navy officer extraordinaire who's put these together. I've had the link to her nonprofit, to the book, Buy It Now. And uh, leave that five-star review on Amazon. I know I'm going to. And uh, I'm going to have her back on, folks. Don't worry. I'm going to have her back on, talk about her new projects and nonprofit. And maybe, just maybe one day, we can ride together, man. Now, that would be epic. I would love that. I love that. Oh, right. man. We could just ride off the sunset with our cigars. Right, right. right. <laughs> no. It'd be epic. It'd be epic. We do epic things here. Well, we're going to close this down. Again, I am Travis Ostermike Radio. I'm with Gina Alderman. The link is live now. Buy it now. Don't even worry about it. Just click buy, get it done, leave the review, and we are Mission in Flight. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you for joining me and watching Oscar Mike Radio. Now go to OscarMikeRadio.com and click shop to check out all the cool merchandise from Authentically American. All proceeds to veteran service organizations. We are Mission in Flight.